Chapter Twenty of Dawn of the Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa Green. Dawn of the Morning by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Twenty. Dawn went back to the Golden Swan that evening, tired but triumphant. She had had a most successful session of school, and she knew it. She felt the victor's blood running wildly through her veins, and longed to have the minister know how well she had succeeded. The teaching part had not troubled her in the least. Fresh from school-books, blessed with a love of study and a gift for imparting knowledge, she entered into the work with a zest. The problem of discipline, which had bade fair in the morning to shipwreck her hopes, had resolved itself into a very simple matter since she had conquered the school leader. It puzzled her a little to know just how she had done it, and why he had succumbed so easily, yet she felt a pleasant elation in recognizing the power she had over him. As she lay in her little room after the candle was out that night, she pondered it, and resolved to try to help Daniel to be a fine fellow. Perhaps some day he would grow to be something like Charles. He never could be as fine and noble, of course, for he was a rough boy, uncultured and ignorant, but he had nice eyes, and he might develop good qualities if he were helped. Dawn would have been horrified if she could have known that instead of loafing with the men at the grocery where he usually spent his evenings, Daniel was at that moment standing in the dark of the kitchen porch of his home, behind the cool morning-glory vines, looking out at the stars and thinking with wonder of the delight it had been to have her soft hand strike his face, and her dainty personality flash down upon him, even in her beautiful wrath. Daniel Butterworth was only a boy yet, but new thoughts were stirring in his heart and an absorbing admiration for her had entered into his soul to stay. Hitherto he had been a big, good-natured, rollicking animal. His mind had been upon either fun or practical matters, never upon books. He had not been taught to think. His surroundings had been rough, easy-going, and practical. Nothing beautiful had ever touched him before, yet his soul had responded quickly now that it had come, and in one brief day Daniel seemed to have grown beyond his seventeen years, and to have come suddenly face to face with manhood. And the cause of his sudden awakening had been the new teacher's hands, so small and soft, and yet so strong. As he thought about them, they seemed to have been made of finer stuff than most women's hands, to have been tinted like the inner leaf of a half-blown rose, and to have borne a subtle perfume upon his senses how he could have seen their color when the rose-leaves were smiting stinging blows upon his closed eyes, he did not stop to reason. He leaned his face against a great morning-glory leaf in the darkness, and its coolness against his fevered cheeks reminded him of her hands, and thrilled him in a way he did not understand. He looked up at the stars, between the strings on which the morning-glories twined, and wondered at himself, and thrilled again with a solemn joy. But all he knew was that he liked the new teacher, and meant to study hard if that would please her, and that he would lick any boy that dared molest her or disturb her gentle rule. So much the little hands had accomplished in their first quick, decisive battle. Then Daniel kicked off his boots noisily and tiptoed up the creaking stairs to his attic chamber, to make his mother think he had been at the village store as usual. Not for the world would he have her know he had spent the evening among the kitchen morning-glories thinking about a girl, and she a schoolmarm at that. He blushed deeply in the darkness at the thought. After that first day of getting acquainted with her scholars and finding out who were in the various classes, 
Dawn fashioned her school on the model of friend Ruth's, as nearly as was consistent with existing circumstances. The rules she laid down were stricter than the village school had ever known before, and went more into detail. A code of ethics was gradually formed among the scholars, who followed the lead of Daniel Butterworth and succumbed to the leadership of the new teacher. Her beauty and her youth combined to make both boys and girls fall victims to her charm. They fairly worshipped at her shrine and went long pilgrimages after berries or rare flowers and ferns, that they might be rewarded with the flash of gratitude in her lovely eyes. They suffered torments in refraining from their usual mischief, that they might escape the flash of steel from those same eyes, for once that was felt, they had no desire to re-experience it. It became the fashion to treat her as a sort of queen, and Dawn was very gracious to her subjects, though always masterful. She smiled upon their offerings impartially, even upon Bug Higginson's small sister's donation of moistly withered dandelions. Yet, when she discovered some deviation from the laws she had laid down, she was severity itself, almost flying into a passion with them, outraged goodness in her eyes and impulsive intensity in her every motion. At such times, she seemed to have a special gift of speech, coming directly to the point and saying the things that would most cut the culprit. Once, behind a stump fence in the woods, she came upon a row of her boys placidly smoking corncob pipes in imitation of the village loafers, or of their respected fathers, each of whom had threatened dire things to his offspring if he was ever caught at the practice. Her horror and disgust quickly blazed into words, until every boy wished that a hole would open in the ground wide enough to swallow him for a little while. Don had no convictions or principles about the matter. She was moved by an innate dislike of the practice, intensified by the fact that Harrington Winthrop had once smoked in her company while walking her in the woods and had never even asked permission. The smell of tobacco smoke ever after gave her a sickening sense of dislike. The boys threw their pipes away, and Daniel Butterworth, rising from the wood of the tree on which he'd been seated, commanded, "'Fellers, if she don't like it, we quit. Do you understand?' We quit entirely. I'll thrash any boy that breaks the rule. The pipes were thrown away, and seven boys with very red cheeks and downcast eyes entered school a trifle late that afternoon, and sheepishly slunk to their desks. The next morning, Daniel Butterworth was found tacking up on the blackboard a clipping from a newspaper, in which was set forth how a certain Eliphalet Howe, a guest at the Tremont House in Boston, had been arrested for breaking the law which declared that there should be no smoking on the streets. The said Eliphalet had been found guilty and fined twenty-five dollars for the offence, though he had pleaded in defence that the sidewalk where he stood to smoke was in front of the Tremont house, and that therefore, as he was on the premise of the house where he was stopping, he was not breaking the law. At recess the scholars filed solemnly around and read the item, and looked with awe at Daniel, who read the papers and knew so much about affairs. Dawn smiled to herself to see how Daniel was helping her. But Dawn knew nothing of the thrashings her champion gave to the smokers whose habits were not so easily broken up, nor how they were forced to find other quarters for their secret meetings, or scattered by themselves in hiding to pursue the practice. Public opinion had turned, and it was no longer popular to do anything the teacher disliked. Daniel was even known to send two boys home one day as they entered the schoolyard, because they smelled of smoke, and he had told them the teacher did not like it. 
It was not to be supposed that in so large a school everything would always be pleasant and easy, nor that the scholars would always be angels. They had their noisy days, and their mischievous days, and their stupid days, and now and then Dawn felt disheartened and discouraged. But matters were made far easier for her than she perhaps fully realized, because of Daniel Butterworth and his devotion to her. Dawn was grateful to the boy, and in return for his championship she let him carry her books home, walking a little way behind with some of his devoted boy-followers, while she was escorted by an eager group of little girls. At first there was a sort of jealousy among her of the older girls, who were inclined to toss their heads and whisper among themselves that she was no older than they, so why should she put on so many airs? They suspected her of taking the attention of the boys away from them. But as the days went by, and Dawn entered into her work with enthusiasm, planning debates and plays and readings for them, and making even the dullest lessons glow with interest because she really seemed to like them herself, opposition melted away, and they succumbed to her charm. For one so young and inexperienced, it was wonderful what she could do with those girls and boys. The parents began to talk about it, the minister saw it with gratification, and pleased himself by thinking his child might have been like that if she had lived. Presently the whole town was proud to own her as a kind of public institution, like the doctor and the minister. There were a few old ladies who shook their heads and wondered how it was that she had come so far from that wicked city of New York to teach their school, without there being a single relative in the vicinity. The village seamstress, with half a dozen pins in one corner of her mouth, would talk about it wherever she went to work and say, what I'd like to know is, who knows anything about her? What is she? Why doesn't she tell about herself? But in spite of all, Dawn walked calmly back and forth to her school and managed the scholars with a degree of dignity and skill that would have done credit to a far older teacher. The whole town gradually began to love her. It was a nine days' wonder that Daniel Butterworth had been so changed by her influence. His mother never could get done thanking the new teacher sometimes with tears running down her cheeks. Often she would send to her by Daniel a paper of fresh doughnuts or a soft gingerbread, or even a juicy apple pie as a token of her thankfulness. Dawn was boarding round, and the days she spent at the Butterworth's comfortable weather-beaten old farmhouse were one continual jubilee for the family and a season of triumph for the teacher. The best dishes and the finest tablecloth were got out, and a fire was built in the solemn front room. There, after the supper, which was composed of all the nicest things Mrs. Butterworth knew how to concoct, the family would gather around the teacher to listen while she talked or read to them. And Dawn, because she wanted to help Daniel, and also because she thoroughly enjoyed the admiration and attention she was receiving, entered into it all and hunted out stories to read to them, and finally gave them a taste of Shakespeare, which she read with remarkable understanding and dramatic power considering that she had never had any interpreter but herself. A new world was open to the house of Butterworth. Even the old farmer sat open-mouthed and listened, watching the wonderful change of expression on the beautiful girlish face. There were flowers in a tumbler on the dinner-table, stiffly arranged by Daniel's oldest sister, Rachel. Daniel wet and combed his tawny hair before he came to meals. It was unusual, and the smaller children noticed, and followed suit. It was one day when Dawn sat at the table, talking and laughing and making them all forget the commonplaceness of life, with her cheeks as red as the late pink aster tucked in among her curls, that Daniel's mother noticed with a heart of satisfaction the look on her boy's face. 
that Daniel should take to a girl like that was all and more that her mother heart could wish. And why not? Were not the Butterworths well off? Was not their farm the largest and most flourishing in the whole country? True, they had not painted their house in a long time, and didn't go in much for fancy dressing, but that was easily changed, and the barns had always been kept in fine repair, which was a good test of prosperity. Thus Mrs. Butterworth meditated in the watches of the night, but she never mentioned the matter, even to the boy's father, for John was terrible easy upset of an idea, and it was just as well to let things take their own way, long as it was such a good way for once. But Don had no idea that any such notion had entered the good woman's head, and enjoyed her stay at the Butterworths heartily, going on to the next place with regret. There were places where boarding round was not altogether agreeable, where the rooms were small and cold and had to be shared with younger members of the family, where the blankets were thin or the feather beds odorous, where the morning's ham, sizzling in the spider on the kitchen stove below, came up through wide cracks in unappetizing smoke, where the master of the house was gruff and her welcome was grudgingly given. Many a night she cried herself to sleep in these places and wondered why she had been born to suffer so and to be so lonely. The thought of Charles and of the day of her wedding was growing to be like a dim and misty dream. She still hugged it to her heart as a most precious treasure, but day by day it was becoming more unreal to her. However, take it all in all, Dawn was perhaps happier than she had been since she was a tiny child with her mother. She was interested in her work and enjoyed the companionship of many of the children, and was pleased to feel that she was independent and self-supporting. Of her own private fortune she never thought. She had been told that there was money left to her by her mother's father, but it made little impression, and she had never cared to ask how much. It was just a part of the world she had left behind her when she ran away in her attempt to undo mischief she had never meant to do. She kept herself much more strictly than friend Ruth had ever succeeded in doing, feeling as she did her responsibility now that she was a real teacher. But she allowed herself many a playtime as the winter drew on and the snowfalls made coasting and skating possible. There was a hill behind the schoolhouse, where at noon she coasted with her scholars, shouting and laughing with the rest. Each boy strove to have the honor of her company upon his sled, but she distributed her favors impartially. It was only when she went home with Bug Higginson to spend her week, and discovered to her dismay where he got his nickname, that her heart failed her entirely and she felt she had met with something she could not bear. However, that experience did not last forever, and Dawn went cheerily on her way, brightening the whole town with her presence, which— now that she was set free from the confines and oppression that had always been about her, seemed to grow and glow with a beautiful inner life. The school children were not the only ones who admired the new teacher and sought her society. There was not a young man in town who did not gaze after her as she went down the street and wish himself a scholar again in the old red schoolhouse. About Christmas time, a new annoyance loomed up and threatened to spoil Don's bright prospects. Suddenly, and without warning, the youngest of the selectmen, Silas Dobson, took a violent interest in the school. He would drop in at all hours and stay the session out, taking occasion to walk home with the teacher if possible. Daniel, who had never presumed to walk beside her alone, frowned heavily and grew almost morose as the thing was repeated. Don was very polite and a little frightened at first. It spoiled the cosy feeling of her school to have visitors. 
the presence of this particular selectman stirred up the latent mischief in the scholars. As his visits were repeated, the teacher was filled with a growing consternation. Silas was a long, thin man, about thirty years old, a widower with five children and an angular mother who kept them in order. He was the editor of the village paper, and as a literary man he claimed that he felt a deep responsibility toward the school. Daniel heard him say this one day, and told the boys he'd knock Silas' responsibility into a cocked hat if he bothered the teacher much more. Daniel's opportunity arrived one night when there was a quilting bee out the old turnpike road, and everybody was invited to the supper. The quilting began in the afternoon, and Dawn closed school early, so that she and the older girls might attend. The young men were coming to supper, and they were all to ride home in the moonlight. With her thimble in her pocket, and her eyes shining, Dawn hurried off from the schoolhouse in company with the older girls who could sew. They looked back once to wave their hands toward the group of boys, who lingered wistfully behind, keeping watch of them. The older boys were to come to the quilting bee later, but they felt, some of them, that the afternoon was a long blank in spite of good skating in the half-holiday. Somehow, the coming of the new teacher had made them more anxious to have the girls along and to have a good time altogether. But they consoled themselves with the anticipation of the evening. The teacher had promised to ride home with them, and they were planning a big sleigh-load all huddled happily on the straw with songs and shoutings and a good time generally. Dawn was looking forward to the ride as much as any of them. But Silas Dobson had other plans. He brought his own horse and cutter, and having arranged that his mother should return home with a neighbor, he himself planned to monopolize the teacher. To this end, soon after supper, he edged over to where she sat among the girls, and conferred the honor of his company upon her for the ride home. At least, that was the impression he gave, as he told her that he wished her to go home with him. "'Oh, thank you,' said Don politely. "'But I've already promised to go home with my pupils. Daniel Butterworth is to bring a big sleigh and we're all going home together.' Silas's face darkened and his back stiffened. "'That will be quite uncomfortable for you,' he said decidedly, as if it were not to be thought of. Don wondered why it was that people were always taking her affairs out of her hands so confidently without asking her leave. But she was no longer the child she had been at home or school. She was feeling the strength of independence. She sat up with dignity. "'Oh, I shall enjoy it,' she answered, sparkling at the thought. "'My cutter is here, and you'd better go with me,' said Silas. "'I'll speak to Dan about it, and make it all right, so he won't expect you. "'Oh, please don't do that,' cried Don anxiously. "'Why was it he reminded her so much of Harrington Winthrop? "'I promised Daniel and the children. "'I wouldn't disappoint them for anything. "'Thank you just the same.' "'Someone else came up then, and Silas turned away, "'but Don watched him uneasily. "'From the look on his face, "'one would have thought she had accepted his attention with delight. "'He did not act like a man who had received a rebuff. "'Later, when Dan drove his horses with a flourish "'to the old horse-block in front of the house,' Silas was waiting for him. "'You needn't wait for Miss Montgomery, Dan,' said the selectman in a patronizing tone. "'She's going with me.' "'She's not any such a thing,' growled Dan. "'She promised us she'd go in our team.' "'Yes, she was afraid you'd be disappointed, but I told her I'd make it right with you,' said Silas in a soothing tone. "'Hurry now, and load up and drive out of the way. Don't you see the other folks are waiting?' 
You wouldn't stand in the way of a lady's comfort, would you? Especially when she doesn't want to go with you. Dan glared at his adversary in speechless wrath for an instant, while the girls and boys were climbing in, then gave a cut to his horses with the whip and drove the long sleigh with its merry load out into the white mist of the moonlit road and round a curve to the fence, where he flung the reins to another boy telling him to wait and keep quiet. Then he stole back round the house and stood in the shadow of a great woodpile, near enough to hear all that went on, but not to be seen. The guests merrily trooped forth in the path of candlelight that shone from the open house door, and Dawn's musical laugh rang over them all. But when she came out to the horse-block and saw Silas standing alone beside his cutter, she drew back and looked around in dismay. "'Why, where is Daniel?' she asked anxiously. "'They told me he wanted me to come now.' "'Daniel has gone,' said Silas pleasantly. "'I explained to him how much more comfortable it would be for you in my sleigh.' And besides, he was crowded as it was. He hadn't room enough for you. Just get right in, and I'll show you what my mare can do in getting you over the snow. Daniel is gone, Don echoed in a troubled voice. Oh, no, thank you, drawing back timidly and looking toward the door. I will see if Mrs. Butterworth is inside yet. I can go with her. I will not trouble you. But Silas was not to be thus set aside. Don't think of such a thing, he commanded. Just get right in. He reached out to grasp her arm and detain her from her purpose, but just as he touched the sleeve of her coat, his arm was grasped from behind, and a skilful thrust of Daniel Butterworth's long arm sent him spinning backward into a big snowbank. When Silas Dobson arose, disconcerted and spluttering from the snowbank, Don had vanished, whisked around the woodpile in a jiffy by Daniel, lifted for an instant in his big strong arms, carried across a broad expanse of unbroken snow, and tucked neatly into the sleigh among the girls and boys. The whole sleigh-load had divined Dan's purpose, and they kept silent until she was safe among them, and Dan in the front seat had gathered up his reins again. Then they gave a united shout, which rang through the moonlit air and struck sharply on the ears of the disconcerted Silas as he climbed hastily into his lone sleigh and turned his horse's head in the opposite direction. The next time Silas Dobson came to visit the school, he stayed after hours and said he wished to talk with the teacher. With lowering brow, Daniel lingered in the back of the room, phenomenally busy with his books. Dawn cast a frightened look around, and her eyes rested on him with appeal. His eyes seemed to give back comfortable assurance of help as he sat down with a thump and began to figure vigorously at a sum he had not finished in the arithmetic class. Silas eyed his youthful enemy, and finally requested that he be sent home, as he wished to have a little private conversation. "'Oh,' laughed Don, loud enough for Daniel to hear, "'Daniel has to stay to-night to finish his sums. It would not do for me to let him go. I might lose my school if I did not act fairly, you know.' Daniel figured away vigorously, putting down any numerals that entered his head. There was a warm feeling around his heart. It was as exhilarating as scoring a point in a ball-game. He was apparently deaf to what was going on about him, and frowned over his sum in feigned perplexity. "'Sit down, Mr. Dobson,' went on Dawn, summoning all her dignity. "'We can talk with entire freedom here. Daniel is busy and will not notice.' She spoke in a low, distant tone and seated herself at the desk. "'I'm one of the principal selectmen,' frowned Dobson, as he sat down at her bidding. "'You needn't be afraid to send him home.' "'It isn't in the least bit necessary.' said Don, thankful to Daniel from the depths of her heart for his presence. 
Silas Dobson lowered his voice, and drawing gradually nearer to the teacher, launched into a flowery paragraph which he had prepared and rehearsed before his mirror. It contained phrases about Miss Montgomery's starry eyes, raven locks, pearly teeth, and rosy cheeks, and was calculated to convey his admiration in a delicate editorial manner. Noting the drooping eyelashes and deepened color of the girl before him, he proceeded from this preamble to make her understand that his interest in the school had not been altogether for the school's sake, and that he was offering her honorable attentions which, if all went well, would mean a proposal of marriage later. If he could have seen the steel flash under the drooping eyelashes, he would not have gone on to impress her with the value of such an offer, nor told its advantages in half so complacent a tone. As usual, Don had control of herself in this unpleasant crisis, and while his words filled her with dismay and repulsion, her tone was cool, low, deliberate. "'I have no doubt that you mean to be kind, Mr. Dobson,' she began. "'Not at all. Not at all. It is my pleasure and my will,' he interrupted effusively. "'But,' she went on, ignoring his interruption, "'I have no desire for attention from anyone, and will have to ask you to excuse me from accepting it.' He looked at her in astonishment, and thought she must be coquetting. But his most earnest solicitations failed to get anything further from her than the fact that she would rather not receive his attentions. "'Do you know,' he asked angrily, "'that I am a man of importance in this town? I have influence enough with the selectmen to take this school away from you if I choose. Take care how you treat me.' "'I suppose there are schools in other places, then.' answered Don coolly, looking him in the eye now, though she felt every fibre of her being in a tremor. "'Are you aware, Miss Montgomery, that I am an editor, and that a very slight word from my pen would go abroad through the land and ruin your reputation, so that you could not get any school anywhere? I cannot see why you should want to do such an unkind thing as that, after what you have said about liking me. But if you do, you need not stop on my account. I can find something else to do.' I certainly could never have anything more to do with a man that threatened such things. I did not say I would do any such thing, Miss Montgomery, began Silas, eager now to retract his angry words. I was merely trying to show you what risks you were taking in talking to me as you did. I mean well by you, and I think you ought to appreciate it. If I were to offer these attentions to any other girl in the village, she would feel flattered. Daniel, Don's voice rang clear and without a trace of the excitement she was under. "'If you need help with those sums now, I can give it. Bring them up here, please.' Daniel lost no time in getting to his feet and gathering up his scattered papers, but the selectman arose in protest and put out his hand toward the teacher. "'Don't call that boy up here yet,' he commanded, and dared to lay his hand upon the girl's arm as he did so, bringing his smug countenance quite near, that he might speak so the approaching boy would not hear but the words on his lips were never uttered. Without an instant's hesitation, Don sprang away from him, crying, "'Don't you dare to touch me, sir!' And with cat-like agility Daniel glided up the aisle and struck the selectman full in the face. Silas reeled backward off the platform and staggered ignominiously against the wall, clutching at the blackboard rail for support, his hat rolling at his feet and his general appearance undignified, to say the least. Daniel stood in a combative attitude, looking at him contemptuously. He would have enjoyed nothing better than to give Silas Dobson a good thrashing. "'You shall answer for this, you young rascal,' threatened Silas. 
shaking his fist at Daniel as he recovered his balance and began to brush the chalk dust from his best coat. This is the second offense, remember. Silas was no match for Daniel in a fight, and he knew it. All right, said Daniel, unconcerned. We'll see who does the answering, but don't you dare touch teacher again, do you hear? I shall have a talk with Mr. Butterworth, who is also a selectman, and with the minister, said Don with dignity. If they wish me to give up the school, I will do so, and thus save you the trouble of doing what you have threatened, Mr. Dobson. You make a great mistake, Miss Montgomery, said Silas, thoroughly alarmed now. I have no desire to have you give up the school. Well, I guess you'd better not have, said Daniel threateningly. Not unless you want a good coat of tar and feathers. There was a look of wrath in the boy's blue eyes that boded no good for the discomfited selectman. "'You have not understood me,' repeated Silas lamely, glaring with helpless anger at Daniel, and then casting a wistful appeal at the teacher. But Dawn had taken up the arithmetic and was figuring rapidly. She only raised her head to say coolly, "'Good afternoon, Mr. Dobson. You will do me the favor if you won't come to visit the school any more. You hinder my work, and I do not like it. Then she turned to Daniel and began to explain the sum. "'You have not understood me,' murmured Silas again. "'I guess you've been understood all right,' said Daniel grimly over his shoulder. With a last angry glare at Don's protector and a threat he would never dare to carry out, Silas Dobson took himself off the scene of action. The next week there appeared a prominent editorial about the public school and its brilliant young teacher, who was doing so much for the youth of the village and should be encouraged in every way by the parents. Daniel read it to the group of boys in the schoolyard, and then cut it out with his penknife and pinned it to the blackboard as an expression of the sentiments of the whole school. After that little episode, there was a closer bond than ever between Daniel and his teacher. They never talked it over, nor even mentioned it, except that Dawn, as Silas's footsteps died away that afternoon, had put her little hand on the boy's rough one for just an instant and said, Thank you so much, Daniel. I do not know what I should have done if you had not stayed. Daniel had turned away with a sudden feeling as if he was going to choke, while the blood in his heart pounded up into his face. But aloud, he only said in a bashful tone, Oh, that's nothing. He needs a good lickin', and I'd like to be the one to give it to him. Afterward, Don wondered that she had dared to speak as she had to Silas Dobson, a selectman and the editor of the paper. And if she had it in her to do so now— how was it that she had allowed Harrington Winthrop to lead her on to a hated marriage when she might have easily stopped it by being decided? Had her brief months of independence given her courage? It seemed strange to her now that she had been so afraid to tell her father what she had felt about it until matters had gone so far that it was almost impossible to stop it. Her heart burned within her sometimes to go back and tell Harrington Winthrop just what she felt about him. She had been weak, she decided, terribly weak, in yielding in the beginning to her desires for a home of her own, and for freedom from any possibility of having to stay in the house with her father's wife. Yet, were not all women weak and helpless sometimes, when it came to a testing of their strength against men? Her mother had not been able to cope with her father's will. It was all a mixed-up world, and full of trouble. She turned on her scanty corn-husk pillow and wished for the dawn of a day that would have no sorrow. Just why was it that her experience with Silas Dobson made the thought of Charles and her marriage so much more vivid than before, Don could not understand, and she thought about it a great deal in the watches of the night, when she should have been sleeping. 
a new phase of her position was forced upon her. She was, in a measure, deceiving other people about herself. Silas Dobson, disagreeable as he was, had no idea that his attentions were an insult to her because she was already married. Of course she could refuse to accept attentions from anyone, but if Silas Dobson had been a pleasant and agreeable man, it might have been difficult to explain to him without telling him the truth why she could not ride or walk with him. It was a terrible problem, and night after night she cried herself to sleep. Sometimes she stayed in unpleasant quarters where she had perhaps to climb a ladder and share the loft above the lean-to kitchen with two of the small children of the family. Often the cracks would be so wide that the snow would blow in, drift across her bed, and even blow into her face. Then, as she dropped off to sleep, lulled by the roar of the wind outside, she would wish that the snow might come softly and cover her out of sight, that she might sleep forever. At other times the thought of Charles brought a great longing to see him and to hear his voice whisper my darling once more, as he had that night when they stood for one blissful moment together in their room before Betty called them. Then Don would go over all the happenings of the evening, the scene at the supper-table, and every syllable that Madame Winthrop had uttered up to the awful moment when the mother had hurled her accusations, and the truth had burst upon the young bride's heart in all its nakedness, that she was married out of generosity. Bitterness towards this woman was changing slowly into understanding. How was the mother to blame for what she had said? It was all true, except that she, Don, had not known it and was therefore not to blame. Then she began to wonder how it was that she could have been so deceived. She could not blame her mother-in-law for doubting her word, for would not she also doubt that a girl could be married to a man and think he was some other? Whose fault had it been? Not Charles's, for he had fully vindicated himself. She would sooner doubt herself than him. Could her father have known about it? Could he have wished her to be married to one whom she did not know, without even telling her? It was believable that he might have thought it of little importance to her if he, her father, willed it so. Yet, while often treating her as if she were a chattel without will of her own, he had ever been perfectly frank with her. She felt that he would have informed her of the change of bridegrooms and not merely carried out his wishes without announcing it to her. She could scarcely believe he would think it would not matter to her. But, after careful thought, she was inclined to lay the deception at her stepmother's door, and she was not long in fathoming the true reason for it. Mrs. Van Rensselaer knew her unhappy state of mind, and probably feared that Don would rebel against being married. To have her remain at home was the worst possible thing that could happen to her stepmother, Don knew, for from childhood she had been hated by the woman who had taken her outraged mother's place. It was all quite plain. All but one thing. How had Harrington Winthrop been turned aside from his purpose of marrying her? Had he done it of himself? Or had her father found out something about him that he did not like? Or had Charles managed it for her? And where was Harrington? Would she ever meet him again? The thought took such hold upon her that it visited her in dreams and made her cry out in alarm as she sought to hide from his pursuing phantom. After her experience with Silas Dobson, Daniel was ever vigilant, attending her to and from school, albeit seldom alone with her. He seemed to be entirely willing that his favorite followers should share his privileges of her company, and often there were several tiny girls, or older ones, in the triumphal procession going to and from the red schoolhouse, taking teacher home. Daniel showed himself a gentle giant toward the little ones, too, picking them up when they fell down, wiping off the mud, and carrying them if they were tired. 
Dawn saw him daily growing more manly and kindly, and she felt proud of him. Perhaps some day he might become something like Charles, though never quite so cultured, for he lacked the refined home training. But she realized more and more that he was a good boy, and a great comfort to her. As for herself, she felt years older than he, and far beyond him in experience. She never dreamed how it was with him toward her. If she had, she might have given up in despair, and cried out that there was nothing good for her in the world. So Daniel continued to guard her, and to watch the movements of Silas Dobson as a cat watches a mouse. If Silas had wished, he would have had no opportunity to repeat his troublesome attentions, for whenever he found himself in the neighborhood of where the teacher happened to be boarding, he was likely to notice Daniel in the immediate foreground. So the long winter went pleasantly by. There were husking bees, quiltings, singing school, and lyceum nights. Dawn became a prominent participant in all. In singing school, no voice was so clear as hers, and she could take the high notes to the envy of every other soprano in the village. At the Lyceum, her readings were more popular than any others. In spite of her frequent loneliness and her feeling of being cast off by all who should naturally protect her, though it was her own fault, of course, that she had run away and she blamed no one, Dawn had never been quite so happy in her life. Her hours were pleasantly employed, she had friends who admired her, and she might do as she pleased. It opened a wide and interesting life before her. If only there had not been that ache as of something lost, that memory of her one beautiful day of love which remained as a haunting vision, she would have felt herself blessed beyond most girls. But all the time there was that sense of something wrong, that could not be set right, of a great mistake that might not ever be mended. And then one morning, when a hint of spring was in the air, and the snow was all gone save lingering patches and dark corners and in shady hollows, and the sunshine was making everybody feel glad, she came face to face with Harrington Winthrop. End of chapter 20. Recording by Melissa Green.